Thanks, Steve. Well, we've been looking at this topic of satisfaction, and uh, it got me thinking, uh, as a kid, what, what toys was I satisfied with? I don't know if you can think back to your earliest memories as a child and think about what toys can you remember? As I thought about that, I remembered this one toy. I don't know why it stood out to me, but it stood out as something that I used to love to play with. Tupperware created it, apparently, and they called it the Shapo toy. It looks like this. Do you remember them? Right, there's that, that kind of orby thing, and then you've got to get the right shape that goes into the right hole, and there's different shapes. I can remember, like, as, as a very young child, getting frustrated that the round peg wouldn't go in the square hole. I'm like, it's smaller. I can see the edges, and I was trying to like, stuff it in, and mum and dad are trying to say, you know, you've got to put the, the right thing in the right hole, and that way you've got to work it out. Such a kind of helpful kind of toy that helps you to grow up and think about what matters. As we've been thinking about satisfaction and where we find it in life, I want to put it to you. There's a sense where life is a bit like one of those shaper toys. We look for different shaped things that we think will just fit just nicely into our lives and fill up the house of little bits that go inside. (laughs) And throughout January, as I said, we've been looking at a number of different ways we seek out satisfaction, whether that's self-improvement or relationships or just the simple pleasures of life, or money and finances. And what we've seen as we've looked at these areas that we go to for satisfaction, that all of them bring a sense of satisfaction, but only to a point. So we've seen in each talk, they just don't last. They don't bring final satisfaction. We put them in, but then we want more. It's like we can consume and consume and consume, and we've never had enough. We end up chasing for more, or we realize that they're... They're going to come to an end, and we're left going, man, what is this life about? Well, I want to put it to you today as we think about this last topic of finding satisfaction in spirituality, that when we are searching for something and it doesn't satisfy, when we keep looking and we find ourselves still wanting more, that tells us that maybe we were made for something more. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, says this, it's on the screen, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Mankind feels sexual desires. Well, there's such a thing as sex. He then goes on to say, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's a perceptive quote, isn't it? We have these desires and they don't seem to satisfy. C.S. Lewis says that's a marker that you were made for something else. He goes on in his book called Mere Christianity to say this. This isn't on the screen. He says, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care, on one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for the earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. The fact that we desire satisfaction and are left unsatisfied tells us we were made for something more than this world can provide. That sense that we hunger for more is not something to ignore, but something to listen to, 
something to think about. What am I made for? Because it points us to what we were made for. And this is actually where a large portion of our world, I'm going to say that the overwhelming majority of our world, seek satisfaction in some ways in the area of spirituality. Now, I've heard it said that New Zealand is the most secular nation in the world. Maybe there's parts of France that are maybe a little more, uh, but, but someone who's got a good view of kind of different world places said to me that New Zealand, in his opinion, uh, was the most secular nation in the world. It was actually Don Carson. There you go. If he said it, it must be true. Not really. But even here in New Zealand, do you know 37% of Kiwis identify as Christian in some belief in God? 37%. 2.63% Hinduism, where there are many gods and there are many ways to them. 1.83% identify with some Maori religion in its different shapes and forms. 1.5% Buddhist. 1.32% Islam. What that tells us is that 44% of this country believe in some form of spirituality, someone outside of ourselves, something that is more than the here and now. Then I read another study published in the International Journal of Religion and Spirituality where the statement was posed to New Zealanders, um, I don't follow a religion, but I am a spiritual person interested in the sacred and supernatural. 30% of Kiwis agreed. So if you add that 30% to the 44%, we've got three out of four New Zealanders actually think there's something greater than ourselves, something out there. We are spiritual people. I think one of the main reasons that we seek spirituality is that we seek some sort of external reference point. And that's the first point I want to look at today, the external reference point. Uh, some of you might know that I, my first degree as I studied was in science and psychology. And one of the things that in science, particularly physics, they teach you about is this idea of a frame of reference. See, a frame of reference is necessary, particularly in physics, to make any real or objective observations. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know that experience when you're sitting at the traffic lights? You're sitting there, you're kind of tired, there's lots of cars around, you're waiting for the lights to turn green, and then suddenly the cars on both sides of you start reversing. Have you seen that? They start moving back, and you're like, oh, and then you realize, no, no, they're not moving back, you're moving forward. But because you can see them out the windows and that's all you can see, you're like, why are they going backwards? Or it might have been the opposite. You might have been sitting there and they started moving forward and you think you're rolling backwards. And so you, you put your foot further on the brake, but you're like, oh, I can't stop it. And you're like, oh, it's not me. <laughs> right? That's an illustration of where we have a frame of reference, where we think in the instance where we're rolling back that those cars around us are stationary, but they're not. They're actually moving, and our frame of reference tells us where we are. We can't make observations about life without having a fixed frame of reference. Those moments you look up, you look at the trees, hopefully they're not sliding as well. They kind of give you that, that frame of reference to know what, what's actually going on around you. But imagine you're at the lights, and all the trees and all the buildings were moving as well. They were all moving around you. What would happen if there was no objective immovable external point to work out where you're at. It'd be chaos. Can you imagine that? It's like people who are suffering from vertigo. This is their world. When things keep moving round and round, they're like, ah, oh, it's always moving and it's, it's horrible. You feel like you're at sea, you're lost. The idea is 
When you come to spirituality, you find in spirituality some kind of external reference point, something that gives you an idea or a moral of what life is about and how I ought to live in this life. Whether you're seeking satisfaction in spirituality today or not, most of us realize we need some sort of frame of reference, a worldview, an idea that helps us to work out what is right and what isn't. What is good? Where do I get these ideas that I live by from? And so... 74% of us turn in some way, shape, or form to spirituality to make sense of the world. The idea that there is something more, some moral order, something or someone outside of ourselves that gives us some sort of way forward, whether that be God or Mother Nature or a golden rule or some sort of religious form. And what society generally tends to do to find this external frame of reference is just to pick one of these spiritualities and give it a go. Give it, give, it, give it a stab. As if, you know, God is our spiritual reference point in some way, shape, or form. And we kind of view him as if there's this external spiritual being and he's on top of a mountain somewhere. And then there are all these different ways, these different spiritualities that would take us to where God is at. And we, we would then, the, the role of finding satisfaction in life is to search for a path that makes the most sense for you. Now, behind that kind of idea that I'm sure many of you have heard, you know, if you heard someone say, look, there are many ways to God, look at all the different views of the world, look at all the different types of spiritualities that exist, it doesn't matter which one you choose because they all lead to the same God, right? We've heard that lots. And, you know, people kind of therefore go, well, it doesn't really matter which path you take. But this morning, as we've just heard in God's Word, as we've come to that section in John chapter 10, Jesus makes a claim about the way to God. Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The claim of Jesus in John 10 that we just had read is that there is only one way to God. Now when you hear that, it sounds pretty arrogant, doesn't it? How can he stand there and go, I'm the only way to God? Who does he think he is? Well, that's a great question. But it doesn't really matter if if, if that sounds arrogant, I don't think. Because I think it's just as arrogant to say, I think there are many ways to God. I mean, what's the basis of that claim? I think that to say that there is only one way is arrogant. Well, (laughs) to say there are many ways is just as arrogant. You know, imagine... You've got some disease, you go to the doctor. The doctor's like, okay, you've got this disease, here is the way to fix it, this is the only way that will work. And I know doctors are fallible and don't have everything right. And you go, ah, oh, so arrogant. I see people taking all these other medicines, you know? But you think that this one's going to fix me for this problem? Who do you think you are? Like, that's so arrogant. I'm just going to take this other thing because I think that's a good way to lead me to health. It's led others there, hasn't it? <laughs> see, it's just as arrogant on both sides. What matters is what is true. Does the medicine work? Does it take me to God? If we're going to invest our life and our our decisions and everything that we do about life in some external frame of reference, it better be true. The question is, how convinced are you that your external frame of reference, your spirituality, what you trust in for satisfaction in life and beyond, is true? So this is where I want to put it to you that Christianity 
is very, very different to every other path of spirituality that the world puts before us. See, every other path is about us finding God. You want to find that shape that will fill the hole in your life, find the way to be satisfied, find what works for me, and then you try it out and you give it a go and you keep kind of putting things in and then go, oh, am I satisfied? And will I, will I get there or not? And they're the questions that come up about we trying to find God. Whereas Christianity says something very different. It changes the frame of reference. Christianity says life is not about finding the shape that will fill the hole in your life, but about God, the maker of the box you put the shapes in, reaching out and showing him himself. We're so busy stuffing shapes into our lives, thinking that we will be satisfied with it, when really we need to recognize, hey, this is designed. This world is designed. There is a creator who made me. And he's made himself known. And he says, see how things seem to fit in the world around us? Look at me. Look at who I am. I bring satisfaction to life. Relationship with me. Life that does not end. Relationship with the world around it in the way that we're, we're supposed to be made to do. Christianity is not about filling life with all the right little shapes. It's about recognizing that we were made to experience the fullness of knowing our maker. God comes for us, not the other way around. See, if there is a mountain and God's on the top and we're on the bottom and we're trying to find our way up, Christianity is convinced that God, the only God, doesn't hope we find the right path, but he comes down the mountain. He makes himself known to humanity and says, hey guys, it's me, look what I have done. So the claim of Christianity is that God has actually come as a man and his name is Jesus. Our whole world bases its date system off the year of our Lord, Adno Domini, around the coming of this historical person called Jesus. It's as if he's grabbed our shoulders, looked us in the eyes, and said to every single person on the face of the planet, I am God. I am here. And he's invited us into his grand and epic story to enjoy life in relationship with him, the way we were made to be, not consistently looking for another shape to fill our lives. As we come to a few chapters later in the book of John, Jesus explains clearly what I mean about who he is. The context is he's sitting in John 14 with his disciples one night, on the night before he's about to go and be crucified on a cross. He's talking about the fact that he's going to be leaving them and he's trying to comfort them. And they don't really know what's going on. They've not really kind of got it. They're like, oh, you've come as God's promised king. Aren't you going to stay and rule? And what are you talking about going? They don't know what's going on. They want to know, look, how do we know what God wants us to do? How do we seek God? John 14 verse 8 says this. Lord, said Philip, one of the followers of Jesus, show us the Father. That's enough for us. In other words, show us the top of the mountain. Show us the Father. Bring us to God. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, I've been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What Jesus is saying to his followers here is, you're looking for God? If you're looking at Jesus, you found him. If you've seen me, you've seen God. I am God standing right in front of you. I've come down from the top of the mountain. I'm right here in front of your face. 
Look what he said in verse 5, a few verses back. Lord Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus replies in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. You don't need to find it, to look for it, to search it out, to follow it for a while and see what happens. Jesus has come down. Philippians tells us that he, he left his father's right-hand side and made himself become human flesh to the point of dying on a cross so that we would see he is God the Son. He is God in a bod, if you want. And after speaking these words to his followers, the very next day he walks to the cross where he makes it possible for people who've turned their backs on God, for people who've walked away from God, to find satisfaction, to find life, to find their maker. He dies in our place by taking the punishment that that you and I deserve for pretending to be God. Now, as you hear that, I don't think I've pretended to be God. I don't know, do do many of you have one of those big Thor hammers? Maybe you do. You made one at home and you're like, yeah, I can swing that round. I don't know how it's gone for you. You've been able to get some lightning in the right places. We're not very good at controlling the weather, that's for sure. Like the last few days have shown us that. We We think, but am I really pretending to be God? See, what we do though is we pretend we know what's best. We're like the little two year old Rowan sitting with his shapo toy, going, no, the round thing fits in the square hole. I'm going to make it work. And so we just keep smashing and going, I don't care that the maker made the world a different way. I'm going to fit this in here and it's going to be good. You know, and we then go and find some other toy, some doll and whack it in so we can get the round thing in. And by the end, we so deform the kind of shape of the thing, the, the, the body of the thing we're trying to put it in, but we go, yes, I got it in. It's in there. And we're excited about it. What we're doing is we're pretending to be God. When we stuff our lives full of things and living the way that God doesn't want us to, the way that, not not living the way we were made to live, we we distort ourselves and the world around us because we're pretending to be the maker. We're pretending to be in control of our lives. I don't think I even really get the severity of rejecting the true and living God. We hear that, that we've rejected God. But when we have this view of spirituality that just all roads lead there, and it doesn't really matter what you do, and it's not really that bad if you pick the wrong God, you kind of, as long as you were good enough, but that's just like shoving in a different shape into another shaped hole. I was trying to think, how can I understand the offense of rejecting the true God who made us? The closest I could come up with was applying this to parenthood. Imagine saying, look, it doesn't really matter who your parents are. Just pick a couple. Any couple will do. They'll get you to parenthood. They, they may have not made you. They may have made you. But at least you'll experience parenthood. Just pick a couple. Just call them mum and dad. Treat them as your parents. Just, just pick one, whichever you want. Maybe one with a private jet. would be better life than one that doesn't have one. Just pick them and say, you're my mum and dad. And then when you do that, it kind of feels okay. You could do it. Until you realise how offensive that is to your biological parents to the ones that raised you and birthed you, suddenly you realize that me choosing a different 
parent is incredibly offensive to my real parent. In a perfect world, I'm, a, I'm aware of the differences and the brokenness of families in our world and how great adoption actually is. My mum's adopted, and I'm so thankful for that. But can you imagine how offensive it would be to say to your real parents, oh, no offence, I just picked those ones as my mum and dad now. I'm just going to live with them. But here, we've all done that to the true and living God. Every time we try and stuff our lives and live our lives in a way different from the way he made us to be. Every time we choose a form of spirituality or God and say, oh, there are many ways to God. Just pick one. It's just like saying, just pick a set of parents and he'll do. Every time we pretend to be God, we call the shots in our lives and determine what we want to do for ourselves, we're saying to God, I am God. You don't exist. You don't matter. I want nothing to do with you. But in the person of Jesus, the historical kind of flesh and blood person, who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, who human history claims has, has changed the face of the planet, as we meet him in the flesh, he says, I am God. Stop pretending. Stop pretending of trying to satisfy your lives in all these other ways. I have come to give life and life to the full. It's found in giving up, searching for satisfaction in all those other ways that are hints of something greater. And that is relationship with me. As Ming and I were preparing for this talk, we um, thought about trying to explain all the different little details of different spiritualities and the differences between spiritual pathways. But the reality that we come to when we hear the claim of Jesus is the only way to know God, the only way to have true spirituality, the only way to have a true and complete and real frame of reference is to know the maker as he's made himself known. It's to meet Jesus. And it's my hope that as you've come along here today, if you do trust Jesus, that you'll be reminded again of how important it is to live for him, to accept what he has done for us, to see how amazing he is and the life that he brings to the full. And for those of you that are checking out Jesus, that are thinking through, is this worth following? To see the claim at least. He's saying to you, I'm your maker. I am your God. No matter what you think of me, I am the creator of all. Come and see what I have done. Now you hear that, and I don't know what's going on in your mind, but for me, there's a sense where I go, but how can we know for sure? That was 2,000 years ago. It was a long time ago. How, how can you know when there are so many other spiritual kind of options? Well, the thing that convinces me probably the most is, well, two things. One, that Jesus has made himself known very clearly in history. It's, it's almost undeniable that the person of Jesus of Nazareth exists. If you search for some of the other paths and the ways and what they proclaim, it's very tricky to find out if that person actually existed and, and lived. But the second reason why I'm, I'm convinced it's true is how much it costs God to do it. Jesus literally gives up his own life. God, the one and only Son, dies to make it possible for us to have satisfaction, to carry us upon that path, to, to bring us into relationship with God by forgiving our sins, by dying in our place. Let me give you an illustration to help you understand why that's so important. Uh, 
A number of years ago, there was a man called Aaron Ralston. He's a rock climber. Uh, he was rock climbing through the canyons of Utah in America. And one day, he, he was in this completely isolated spot, you know, so far from anyone. He's climbing down a rock ledge. He puts his hand behind a boulder, and the boulder moves and crushes his hand and traps him. Five and a half days, he tried to pull his, his right hand out. Five and a half days, he yelled and screamed for help. No one came. They made a movie about it. It was called 127 Hours. You might have seen it. You might go home and watch it. So after five and a half days, he realized that the only hope of his survival, the only way to get out, was he had to cut off the thing that was pinning him there. Couldn't move the rock, needed to move the hand. And so he worked to cut all his flesh around where his hand was. He then worked to snap both bones in his arm and then worked to pull his arm out, which he did as his hand was torn off and then hyped out of where he was, saving his life but losing his hand. Incredible story. Right? He now does motivational talks on speaking to us, helping people to say, don't give up, keep going. There's ways out and making tough decisions. But imagine for a moment, Aaron's at this motivational talk. He's chatting to all the people that are there. And afterwards, he asks, look, you know, does anyone want any questions? And this guy comes up to him and goes, hey, Aaron, were you in this, this certain canyon that you were in? He's like, yeah, yeah, I was there. And is, this a, is this a photo of the boulder that was there? And he's like, yeah, it is. He's like, yeah. Do you know what? I was there the other day, and all you really had to do was push on the other side of the boulder, and it would have like freed your hand, and you could have gotten out. Imagine someone saying that to him. He'd be like, what the heck? I just cut my arm off and there was another way. It would have been so much better. It would have been so easier. I mean, you can imagine him going, oh, if only I'd tried pushing the rock. (laughs) Now, when we come to thinking about God and the way that God has provided a way for us to be saved, if God himself, who knows all and is in control of all, says that the only way for you and me to be in right relationship with God It's for God the Father to cut off the relationship with God the Son as God the Son willingly lays down his life and dies in our place. Do you think if there was another way, God would have taken it? If there was another path, oh, just follow the eightfold pathway to spirituality. Just be a good person. You don't need Jesus to die. I mean, imagine rocking up at at, at the gates of judgment and coming before God and going, well, you know, and God said, why should I let you in? And you go, well, I was just a good person. And Jesus is like, what? You only had to be a good person? I literally gave up my life and took the sin of the whole world on my shoulders. All I had to do was to push the rock a bit the other way. You just had to be a good person. You would have said, ah, what was I thinking? The fact that God the Son had to die. God, the one who knows all and is in control of all, tells us. (laughs) Don't you think if there was another way he would have done it? But he laid down his life. God the Son died in our place. The creator of all allowed the people who were hammering his arms to a cross. He allowed their hearts to beat so he could be killed and then suffer the punishment of God for us turning our backs on him, for us pretending to be God. Jesus took that punishment. In Matthew 26, Jesus said on that last night, if there's any other way, Lord, take it from me, but not my will, but yours. And willingly walk to his death to die for you and for me. You think there's another way than the death of God the Son? 
Friends, what the scriptures show us, what history shows us, is the reality of God coming down the mountain and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one who comes to the Father except through me. The next point that we're looking at is the narrow path, and that is the way that Jesus provides. And that's what God has done. He's come down the mountain historically, verifiably, and said, I will die in your place, and has done that for us. And given you and me access to God, an external frame of reference that deals with our rebellion, that deals with our future, that helps us to work out how to live with God at the center of our lives and how to have life that lasts forever. Now, if that's all clear, though, why isn't everyone a Christian? Did you ever ask that question? If this has been so clear, why is it you know, that, that the people just don't all come to Christianity? And that's one of my big questions. I'm so thankful that God has revealed himself to me and has shown himself to me so I might see who he is. But there are so many others that following other paths, other ways, other spiritual alternatives. One of the questions I like asking people is, you know, why aren't you a Christian? That's a great question to ask people that are around you. If you're here today and you don't yet trust Jesus, why, why not? And of all the answers people talk to me about, all the answers I get to that question, I think the one you can boil it down to and the one that is what I'm like as well naturally, the reason that we're not Christians is because we're not, well, it's because we're stubborn and proud. We think we know better than our maker. See, at the core of humanity, we've, we've got issues. And the biggest issue we've got is with someone else other than ourselves being God. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told what we can or can't do. We're so broken that a whole group of us don't really even want to know God anymore. We just want to live life without Him. And I want to say it's kind of like saying I want to live life without my parents. There might be a whole host of reasons why you think that God has done things to you, you've experienced the, the horrors of, of Christian community at times and we haven't loved one another and people have been harsh. you experience suffering in the world and there are good answers to all of those things, but we think we know better than God and at the heart, it's pride. If you want to have satisfaction in life, you're going to need to swallow your pride. And recognize the God that has made you, has loved you so much. That despite what you and I have done, he still allows us to come to him in the forgiveness Jesus offers. So the difference between Jesus and every other way of spirituality is that Jesus has come down and said, I will do it for you. It's the last thing I want us to understand. See, every other form of spirituality, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism, they all talk about what you need to do in order to be right with this spiritual God in whatever way that is. Buddhism has a, a, an eightfold pathway to finding nirvana, the place of nothingness where nothing can affect you. And if you can find that, then that's, that's great and you've achieved it. But you've got to do that. Hinduism is about pleasing the gods. If, if you live a good enough life, you'll come back reincarnated as there's something better the next time or worse as a cockroach. And then is, Islam is all about you've got to do more good than bad. That's why it's, it's the scales. You've got to do more good in this life. If you do more good than bad, then Allah is happy and you're in. New Age spirituality and mindfulness, is, you've got to work to achieve that holistic health. 
And you've got to get those bad things out of your mind and just find that tranquility, that peace. You've got to find the right crystals, hug the right tree, whatever it is, you've got to find it and do it. Even atheism has you fighting for your own survival. You've got to be the fittest, the best, get the most out of life, the smartest to make your own destiny. Every other form of spirituality comes and says, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. And it puts a massive weight on life. But Jesus comes and says, it's done. I did it. I laid down my life for you. I paid the price that you deserved. In John 14, 6, Jesus says these words, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me because he is the one that's done it for us. As I say, keep seeking me out, keep living as a better person, keep doing all this stuff. He says, I died in your place so that you could have my place. Many people will try and find their own spiritual pathways in life. We'll try and choose our own adventure. But I hope you've heard today how offensive that is to the true and living God. That's actually all about our pride and what we can achieve and what we can do. And it actually achieves nothing. Because the only way we can be saved is through the blood of God the Son. In preparing for this talk, I read some of Stephen Batchelor's translation of the Buddhist scriptures just to kind of get a bit of a picture where Buddhism was coming from. And, and what it said is that Buddha spoke these, these words, his final words, to a group of monks. And the last message, the last words that Buddha said to his followers before he died was a Greek word, apamada, which actually means to strive unceasingly. The thing he left his followers was this, strive unceasingly, keep chasing it, strive for it, look after it. In one sense, that sounds like good advice, but in another, the weight of that advice is incredible. Strive unceasingly. Do, 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 keep chasing, keep chasing, keep chasing. Now come with me to the final words of Jesus as before his death. They're up on the screen, John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. That's done. Jesus paid the price for your sin and mine. Jesus secured for us satisfaction and life that will last forever. It is finished if we come and put our life in his hands. Our search for spiritual enlightenment, our search for satisfaction is over when we come and recognize who Jesus is and what he's done. To think that God loved his creation so much that despite our messiness and confusion and rebellion and rejection of him, he chooses not to leave us to try and work it out on our own, but shows us satisfaction and hope and life are found only in him. Friends, it's my prayer that each and every one of us, as we think about where we find satisfaction in life, as we look for those areas that we feel unfulfilled in, we'll look to the, the future of relationship with God forever, where sin has been forgiven and evil is put away, 
We'll look to the reality of the present, trusting in Jesus, knowing that God loves us and having relationship with him. And looking to the past and what we have done, knowing that it's been paid for at the cross. And therefore, stop trying to stuff our lives with self-improvement and relationships and simple pleasures and financial freedom, thinking that they will bring satisfaction. But recognize the one who made the box. Recognize the cost of the solution he's provided. And recognize the love we've been offered coming to Jesus and putting our lives in him. Let's pray that we would do that with our lives, finding satisfaction in the one and only way, the truth and the life, whose name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you've not left us to just seek out you on our own, nor what life is about or satisfaction in this life, but that you have made yourself known in the person of your son. We're so sorry for pretending to be you, for pretending that we've got life sorted, that we know what we're doing and, and trying to stuff our lives with all sorts of things outside of the way you've made us. We're sorry for the offense that has caused you. Please forgive us. Please help us to stand in the great joy of knowing that in Jesus, our sins have been paid for. As he died, he took the penalty for us. Help that to be a true and clear reminder of life to the full. And help us, Lord, to look at the world around us, not as things we should flee from all of, but as tastes and hints of what is to come, of how much satisfaction there is in you, and that we would find our hope living our lives as people who are forgiven, as people who are longing for another day when Jesus comes back and all evil is dealt with, and we get to spend an eternity with you. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.